Welcome back, everyone. This is part two of my conversation with Jeremy. So if you haven't listened to part one, go there and listen to that first and then continue with this conversation. In the area of innovation, a lot of organisations, particularly in Australia and um, and other organisations I know globally, are using things like deliberate time or space in organisations. They'll they'll put some time into hackathons and bringing people together. Um, are, are you a fan of creating that space? Because uh, I know that that you you talk about that a little bit. Yes, if. Tell me more about the yes if. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, I am all about, I mean, innovation is not an event. Innovation is a practice, it's a capability, et cetera. The, so that's not to say that events don't have a place. They do. But if you, if you treat innovation like it only happens at the sprint, yeah. here's a question. How many medals have you won? And for most people, they have a bunch of sprints or a bunch of hackathons and they have no, they have nothing in the trophy case. Yeah. And you wonder why, well, here's why. Who's practicing? Yeah. Who's in the gym? Who's on the track? You know, most people show mm. up to the sprint and you know what they do? They pull a hamstring. <laughs> okay. There's no trophy. There's, they're in the hospital. Why? They pull a hamstring because they, they haven't stretched. And then they're told yeah. to go sprint. I mean, it's like, imagine if you and I, I go, okay, Josephine, we're both going to go sprint around the block right now. Yeah. We both yeah. come back limping, right? Yeah, exactly. Mm. You know, because you have to, you have to stretch, you have to warm mm -hmm. up, you have to condition. And then the sprint can serve an amazing, it is the place to win medals. Yeah. Provided that you've been doing the work of practice. Yeah. For many organizations, the sprint has become a replacement for practice. Mm that will never work yeah yeah absolutely so so in your in your experience that practice that daily practice whose responsibility is that is it is, are we really talking about leaders bringing this into organizations you know it, where has that worked from an implementation point of view where has that worked well for you and who 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 has the chart you know who has the mantle who has the charge for this There's, there's a couple of answers. One is it's a deeply personal, fundamentally, um, ideas happen in brains. And I re and there's, there's a lot, I actually have a colleague at Harvard who contends that people aren't creative, mm -mm. which I just don't get me started. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, so whatever, that's fine. Okay. But to me ideas happen they don't have like there's no ideas popping up on my wall right now or popping mm. up on my computer right now mm -mm. yeah they're not you know, it's just it's like saying it's like saying a baby can be conceived without the act of conception it's like it doesn't happen you know we haven't figured that out yet same with ideas it actually they actually happen in a brain okay so there is a sense of the human the individual human capacity for mm -hmm. conception how, what do I do with inputs? What do I do? How do I synthesize them? How do I play with them? How do I experiment with them, et cetera? And so there's the, there's kind of the individual component, which is critical and which requires practice and attention and development and cultivation, just like, you know, anything else. But then there's also the organizational um, piece. And I would say yeah. 
an organization's responsibility is both to encourage the individual practice and to create space for communal collaborative practice, right? And so if you think about, so setting aside the individual, not because they're unimportant, but because they're so important, we have to talk about them separately. Setting aside the individual for a second, there's a really important finding, which is good ideas come from bad ideas, okay? Mm -hmm. Where is the space for bad ideas in your yeah. company? Where is the person who is willing to share the bad idea? Where is the leader who is safe to share a bad idea with? You know, like Sir Johnny Ive tells the story when he was working with Steve Jobs. He said, mm -mm. every day Steve used to say to me, hey, Johnny, here's a dopey idea. Uh, he oh, said, most of the time his ideas were pretty dopey. Yeah. In fact, sometimes they were truly terrible. But every once in a while, they take the air out of the room. Yeah. And, and so, and what, and, and Steve Jobs knew where good ideas come from is relationships where bad ideas can be shared. Yeah. And so a lot of times what you have to do as a leader is you actually have to lower the bar. And yeah. there are lots of ways to do that. There's, I mean, in facil gifted facilitators, there's an incredible role for a gifted facilitator to basically normalize play and to normalize silliness and to norm. And you go silly. I go, yeah. Serious isn't working, you know, yeah. is how, yeah, exactly. how serious working for you. Yeah, yeah. And if serious isn't working, what makes you think that, you know, then, then what makes you think silly won't, right? But anyway, it's not that it's, it's not that we're being frivolous or that we're being mm -mm. stupid or that we're commissioning, you know, nonsense. It's none of that. But it's recognizing there's, you know, we've talked a little bit about volume. There's also variation. Yes. Variability is really essential. Mm -hmm. Creativity innovation is essentially a numbers game. And what you want to do is kind of put shots on goal. And so how do you think about broadening the shots on goal? You've got to create space for people to, um, to be safe, to have bad ideas. You know, Amy Edmondson has done a ton of work on this at Harvard yeah. on psychological safety. Yeah. And, and so the, lots of ink has been spilled, but the point is it's a both, it's not an either, or it's a both. Mm -hmm. And the in, there's individual responsibility and there's an organizational responsibility. Yeah. And I think we, are, there's a lot of, um, you know, energy around that, that topic of psychological safety that I'm hearing. And particularly in Australia, we've changed our work health and safety act to include um, a focus on psychosocial hazards. So people have focused on well-being and psychological safety, but I think the innovation dimension has dropped off that. And people think of psychological safety as needing to help employees feel safe, which then goes to a conservative response to that. And so there's right. almost like that distortion of that idea. And I keep saying, you know, psychological safety is about feeling safe to be uncomfortable. In other words, you can share the dopey idea and you can feel, you know, because that might be a little bit uncomfortable or you might be vulnerable in doing that because, uh, you know, you put yourself out there when you share a dumb idea, but that mm -hmm. it's it, it lands in a safe place. It land, and, mm -hmm. and that people can uh, uh, um, have the capability, the competency to give you feedback in a way that doesn't destroy you so that you don't give another bad idea tomorrow, you know, because that's yeah. often the case, isn't it? It's we, we're not very good at receiving and giving feedback. That is not a competency that is a default for most. Well, most it, it's, I think it's, I think it's in part, maybe not entirely, but at least in part, it's due to this abdication of responsibility that 
the environment isn't my job or the rather the environment is nobody's job Mm-mm. or or rather the environment is everybody's job you know so if the environment is everybody's job it's nobody's job and if yeah. if it's nobody's job to attend to the environment then and, and who's almost you can think about it there's a product manager of the environment that's what there should be and if it's no one's job to attend to the environment like a product that needs attention and product market fit and iteration and experimentation, then is it any wonder that yeah. the environment isn't isn't conducive to creativity? No, not at all. Mm-mm-mm. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Um, so, Jeremy, I, I'm uh, you know I'm I'm really getting a lot of inspiration from this conversation. I keep thinking back to my older experience at my older workplace because what we did I think in some ways I can see where we went wrong in some ways because we um, institutionalized design thinking we created a center for design thinking and we made it the responsibility of one function of the organization and but we didn't that necessarily didn't um, didn't it didn't incorporate the team's practice I think the director of the center was uh trying to influence teams but the responsibility Mm. was with that person with you know it's your job to be the director of innovation or director of design thinking rather than creating an accountability across all teams and and instituting some of these daily practices we we created an academy in a way internally Mm. which made it a little bit inaccessible because uh it, it became this uh, knowledge base that wasn't necessarily in everybody's, you know, ballpark. Um, so, so I can see how that could have worked. Where do you think, in terms of creating an a viral level of implementation of this, because what a scalable level of implementation? Because I can see how I can apply it in my daily life, and perhaps if I'm a team leader, I can apply it with my team but what 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 do you need to really create a shift in an organization so that it becomes that norm it becomes a norm to uh be discussing um bad ideas and allowing space for inspiration as an as a normal part of the the business right you know as the work routine a normal part of the well, way we there, work. There, i have two answers to that question um one is ultimately you need a ceo who sees the necessity of innovation so that's one thing if you have a ceo who's satisfied who's content none will say that by the way but if they aren't pushing yeah if they really aren't pushing the organization not just to do what they're doing better but to be figuring out better things to do then that would be evidence of contentment and if there is so so that's one thing the other thing i would say is it's largely uh well okay well i'll illustrate so sorry remind me to say down not up okay i'll, I'll come back to that so just you know put a bookmark on that down not up um i had astro teller who's the head of google x on my podcast a while back and he said something that i found it's just to this point about the ceo he said um you know, it's kind of awkward because I used to get, get asked to give innovation lectures, an hour long lecture on innovation. But he said, the problem is it only takes me a minute to give a lecture on innovation. And it's kind of awkward because we don't know what to do with the other 59 minutes. And I said, well, what's 
the, okay, what's the minute? And he said, <laughs> raise your hand if you are willing to take a 10% chance at a billion dollar idea rather than a hundred percent chance at a million dollar idea. He said, everybody raises their hand because just mathematically speaking, it's a $10 million, you know, expected value versus a million, right? He said, now keep your hand up if your CEO and your board agree with you. And he said, every hand in the, wow. in the place goes down. And he said, you don't need a new innovation you need a new leader. And to me, that is so, which is to say it's, there's a significant role uh, for the leader to play. And one question that an individual should ask themselves, it's kind of a seed versus soil, as I've heard it said, you know, there's something to be said for the soil itself, the environment, you know, choose and, and being thoughtful and discerning about choosing an environment, which is highly likely to, to, you know, be conducive to innovation. Right. So that's kind of one thing. And that's like kind of a priori conditions before you choose a job. Right. Okay. So that's that part. Now I want to get to the other part, which is, you know, down versus up. Given that you're already in a job and given that you are not looking to change your job, then what has to be done? I think it's useful to ask, what can I personally do within my sphere of influence, within the span of control that I hold presently? And think about managing behaviors downward rather than trying to change someone else's management of you upward, right? So for example, Astro Teller, just to use the same person, he has a simple kind of give me five, you know, um, interaction with teams where they're coming up with an idea. He always says, I want five, not one. I want five. Give me five. And people hear that and they go, man, I wish my boss said, give me five. I go, okay, no, no, stop. You start saying, give me five to the people who report to you, right? Yeah. That's managing down versus managing up. And a lot of times, granted, the very best is to choose an environment that expects innovation, that demands it, and that, that you know, it encourages behaviors in keeping with it. That's like an a priori condition. Given where you are now, if you're unwilling to leave your job, which would be an intellectually honest way of approaching the problem, if you're unwilling to leave your job, which for whatever reason many people are, think about changing the expectations in your sphere of control rather than bemoaning the fact that someone else doesn't do the thing that a really innovative leader does. You be the innovative leader mm -hmm. who has innovative expectations of the innovative people who are working for you. Yeah, absolutely. And create that beautiful bubble. And and in some ways, I think that um, that's also a way to, you know, get out of a mindset that that we're just victims of an environment as well. I think that that's that's really good advice because that doesn't um, that doesn't lead to good outcomes for you personally or the organization um, anyway. Um, right. There's, there's um, I'm very passionate about diversity and I know you are as well. And I, and when, when we look at the research around even um, gender diversity in teams, we know that better out, there are better outcomes around innovation and performance. Um, yeah. Can you talk to that just in terms of diversity, you know, and, um, and because we, we talk about multiple perspectives, but then um, I also know that, you know, many leaders are, are still male, white, um, you know, pre come from pri privileged backgrounds, you know, how do we, um, how do we 
really use some of these techniques to uh, to firstly address the issue of diversity and and what what do we need to know about diversity in terms of these results that we're after in, in terms of really creating creative innovative um, organizations well it, it, I think a lot of it kind of boils down to your objective, right? It turn, the research is clear. Homogenous teams are better if you need to do a known task in, in an unchanging environment. Her, heterogeneous teams or diverse teams are better if the task is unknown and or the environment is changing. So start from the premise of is what I need for people to do jobs that I already know them uh, that, that I already know what they're doing and it's a straightforward task if so don't look for diversity diversity in that yeah. case will only add complexity and difficulty and slow the team down right so first the case against diversity but then the case for diversity and I think the majority of cases we actually don't know what needs to be done and stability is an illusion we it is a highly unstable environment in that case it's far better to endure the known and well-documented pain of a diverse team because they move slower they're harder to you know communicate and to align that's it it does come with a cost the outcomes are a step function better in in a in an uncertain and highly volatile environment which is the environment that increasingly we're all facing yeah absolutely and um and in some ways again it's um teams coming together with you know in a heterogeneous um teams coming together and having particularly different roles um around short-term and long-term views can also i think create amazing results too I, I keep talking about this issue of ambidextrous leadership because we find that particularly um, when we when I work with teams who are on a transformation journey that's the real stick stickler um, t executive teams as sponsors of those kind of you know step change projects or strategic projects start out very uh, energetic and vigorous around that change and then the competing demands of that business as usual that core business um, I, I think have an influence and then the, yeah. the team itself loses sight of that future direction so um, so you know I think executives in particular really feel the pressure of that ambidextrous leadership. Um, have you seen that in the work that you do with with particularly um, sponsors of transformation? Absolutely. You know, I mean, as human beings, we crave certainty, we crave um, consistency. You know, one of the most psychologically distressing phenomena we experience is the unknown, you know, um, ambiguity. And so we tend to just try to, we even create artificial or arbitrary clarity just because it's, it's a relief, right? Um, and ambidexterity is right. I mean, I, Charles O'Reilly and Michael Tushman, who've pioneered a lot of that work, Charles at Stanford, Michael at Harvard, they're close collaborators of mine. And, and they, um, they have demonstrated, again, going back to this idea, you have to have a leader who can justify, you know, ambidexterity, for those who aren't familiar, the basic premise is you have to be able to simultaneously execute known capabilities and existing market, existing capabilities, known markets, et cetera, 
and simultaneously explore developing new capabilities and new markets and being able to do both of those things they call organizational ambidexterity. What is required going back to the role of a CEO is a acknowledgement that simple execution of the known plan is insufficient to deliver the value that we want to deliver. If you don't, they call that strategic alignment. If you don't have that strategic alignment, forget it. Don't explore. It's just, and you see that actually, I mean, the sad thing, I don't know what the story is at Telstra. I'd love to learn more about the history there, but the sad thing is you see it, it's almost cyclical. You know, these design thinking labs, they get spun up and then yeah. shut down every three to five years because it's, you know, somebody's got a bold ambition and they're like a vision and they, they resource it all that stuff. And then things change and it's, you know, EBITDA would look a lot better if we got rid of that innovation lab. And so you kill it. And then, you know, and then the, the market comes back, you go, wow, we really need to be investing in innovation. And it's just, it's, it's this cyclical True. thing. Mm -mm. Yeah. And, and I think, I think you're right. I think that internal alignment is important. It's almost like a, what you're saying, it's a foundation. You need that, you need to get that right. And um, before you can stretch. And I think that in a, my experience of the organization at that time, I think that there was some movement towards getting that al internal alignment, but I wouldn't say that it was there. Definitely not there. So yeah, it's at hard. The time. It's hard. Mm -hmm. So that, that's good. That could be right. Um, so Jeremy, what's the next, um, we go, we're at the end of the year. What's 2024 for you? What, what are you looking forward to? Um, you know, I am very, uh, bullish on generative AI and um, leveraging generative AI to basically be Iron Man super suits for us mere mortals. Um, and right now people are, they're just scratching the surface, Josephine, in terms of the mm. possibilities. And so where I really want to spend some time focusing in 2024 is helping human beings develop conversational skills with their AI co-pilots. And it's, it's very simple, but I mean, the research I've conducted and it's going to be knock on wood, it's going to be published in Harvard business review in the spring oh, great. basically demonstrates that teams that look to AI as an Oracle underperform, it feels like magic and they underperform teams that look to AI as a conversation partner right. overperform, but it feels like work yeah. and they don't like it as much, you know? Mm -hmm. And so if you want it to feel like magic, it can, but it's probably not great outcomes. If you are willing for it to feel like work, you actually get to a better place. But what that requires is you shift from approaching ChatGPT as an oracle to ChatGPT as a thought partner, as a conversation yeah. partner. And the reality is very few people have any kind of conversational fluency. Yeah. And so to me, it's that the foundational kind of ability is folks have to be able to feel comfortable talking with ChatGPT, have an mm -hmm. ongoing conversation, an ongoing dialogue with ChatGPT. That's interesting. I hadn't even thought about it that way. And, um, uh, but I understand, I, I, I'm already starting to understand that that's an incredible uh, skill set. And, um, and getting, and when you say comfortable, there is, um, does that also involve an understanding of what, what the AI co-pilot, I love that word too, needs from me? in terms yeah, of the I, prompts in terms of that that um that idea flow i don't think it's about being technical mm. i do think it's about 
having a willingness to re-engage and to question and to push and to um, that's the because of this well-known tendency which we've discussed you know a couple times now and even in this conversation to just settle for good enough yes you know it's so easy you know it's i mean classic example i i need a i need to title this podcast right you want to title the podcast you ask ChatGPT for even if you're enlightened enough to know i should ask for 10 answers or what i've heard is that 20 is really what starts to get you kind of high variability then you look at those 20 and you know the question you ask you're asking yourself which one do i like best yes yeah you're not asking i want 20 more yeah yeah there's no penalty for asking for 20 more yeah. and 20 more and 20 more <laughs> we, you, i mean and it's i get i mean not that you can read hundreds but the point is mm-hmm. you look at the 20 and none of them sing and none of them stand out to you and you immediately go into well, which one's the least bad? Yeah. I don't want to spend any more time on this mm-hmm. rather than give me 20 more. I don't like these or even better. You know what? I really like number one, number four, number 17 and number 19. Can you give me more like that? That's right. And then when it comes back and you don't like them, you go, why do I like number one? I like number one because it's got alliteration. I like number four because it's got a pun. I like number 17 because you know, whatever it is, can you give me more using alliteration and puns and whatever as design principles, right? That requires effort. Yes. Yes. Period, you know? Mm. Mm-hmm. And so, but, and if you're willing to do that, you get to the point where you're like, I, that is a solution I never would have thought of. It is yeah. better in every way that's a super powered individual, but it requires having that practice. So yeah. that's one thing I've been building is actually a series of drills called, I've called them, you know, kind of AI fluency skill drills mm-hmm. for individuals to practice getting conversant with AI. Great. To me, mm-hmm. that's the, that, that kind of comfort level and confidence is the starting blocks for organizational deployment of AI. Oh, that's amazing. Where can we, where can people find the drills, Jeremy? Yeah, they'll be at howtofixit.ai, howtofixit.ai. Great. All right. And we'll put that in the show notes too. That's wonderful. I'm really excited. Um, Maybe we can talk again next year after the HBR article comes out. Um, Can you, um, you know, obviously you're going to, you're, you're in the middle of publishing that, but can you give me a little bit of a, just a sneak preview in terms of how that research was conducted? Yeah, happy to. We um, we went inside of organizations, uh, organizations in the U.S. and in Europe, mm-hmm. and we had them specify a problem that they were trying to solve, um, that they wanted to you know do conduct brainstorming sessions around. So sometimes it's a new product, sometimes it's about education, sometimes it's about a new market, you know, et cetera, et cetera. We had teams of people come in and we developed a brainstorming structure, very simple brainstorming yeah. structure for a team to consider you know, interdisciplinary team to generate ideas, right? This is kind of my sweet spot. The important thing is half the teams had access to ChatGPT and half did mm-hmm. not. Um, <clears throat> so at the end of the session, we asked the problem owner, blind of which team the ideas came from to grade the ideas. Right. And so we basically were measuring three things. One, how many ideas does a team generate mm-hmm. and compared? Teams with ChatGPT, teams without. How broad of a quality variation is there from dumb to delightful, right? Um, From dopey, as Steve Jobs would say, to delightful. (laughs) 
<clears throat> from comparing ChatGPT teams and not. And then third, how did people, how did the experience affect participant sentiments? We asked people before and after, uh, how do you feel about collaboration? How do you feel about problem solving? How do you feel about brainstorming? How do you feel about generative AI? And we asked teams that used ChatGPT and teams that didn't before and after and compared the impact of the experience on their, uh, on their feelings about those various topics. Right. Love it. Can't wait to read the article. And in some ways, HBR, um, it, it, uh, spring is great, but you know, this, this, um, the technology moves and our practice around it moves so quickly. So let's hope it mm. gets a speedy <laughs> publication. Yeah. It's almost like we need to get better, particularly in the peer reviewed space. We need to get better at kind of doing this faster as well. Don't we, Jeremy? Yeah. Just yeah, takes that's right. a little bit too long. Cause that's, that would yeah. be fabulous to, to have a read of right now. Yeah. That's wonderful. Jeremy, is there anything I haven't asked you today that you wanted to, to share anything else on your mind? No, I, I well, you know, a, a couple of things. One, uh, I'd love to connect with people on LinkedIn or, you know, they can visit my website, jeremyutley.design. Um, if they want to, you know, subscribe to the newsletter or listen to my podcast or anything like that. Um, and two, I, maybe the last thing actually I'd say is I'm a Christian and my work is motivated by my faith. My, not just work, but my life is motivated mm -hmm. by my faith, you know, mm -hmm. and I feel that's something that some people don't, they're reluctant to express mm -hmm. because they don't want to be seen as proselytizing. I mean, I'm certainly not, uh, you know, proselytizing or anything like that, but yeah. I feel it's, an, you know, when we talk about what motivates us, for me, it's, yes. I want to, I want to do great work because I believe that that um, is good stewardship of the life that mm. I've been given, you know, mm, and I have, I believe that I have to answer for the life that I've lived at the end of my life, you know, and so that that's important to me. And so anyway, anytime I have the opportunity, it's funny, a lot of times, you know, we'll run these workshops or have these, um, you know, keynotes, and things like that. And I'll get invited to dinner by the, you know, host or the client or whatever. Yeah. And someone almost inevitably will say, so where do you get your energy? You know, mm -hmm. something like that. I'm a very, I tend to be very energetic and sarcastic and funny and things like that. Not now, but you know, with people um, and, uh, and, and I'll say, do you want the honest answer or the superficial answer? Right. Cause uh, yeah. some people don't want a real conversation, but, and sometimes people say, uh, never mind, you know, but the people who say, I want the honest answer. I say, it's because I'm a disciple of Jesus Christ. Mm. Yeah, it, it brings a lot of purpose and meaning into my life. And, That's wonderful. You know, the number of people who go, I thought you were going to say you did CrossFit. You know, <laughs> so, you know, I thought you, I thought you're into meditation. You know, it's like what's funny is people have come to expect in the world today, yeah. CrossFitters are going to be out. Or I thought you were going to say you were vegan, right? Yeah, Which is like, yeah, That's yeah. by the way, I'm all. I do like CrossFit. I do like vegetables. All those things are fine. What's yeah. funny is we've entered into an era where mm. a CrossFitter can proudly proclaim the virtues of high intensity interval training and a vegan can, you know, proudly proclaim the virtues of a microbiome boost, yes. right? But a Christian or a person of faith of any kind yeah. goes, uh, I don't, you know, yeah. I go, I don't want to be any quieter about the thing that matters most to me than exactly the not not to not good or bad on veganism but it's like we if we want to value one another as human beings we should be able to say honestly this is it's what right. drives me it's right absolutely a, you know if you're like a yoga practitioner i'd love to hear all about it you know and or whatever it is right whatever the thing is yeah but to me to withhold that because of you're not bringing your whole fear. self to things if you withhold that thank you jeremy i love that that you you've um, added that i wanted to tell you just very quickly 
when I lived in the Middle East for a year um, um, and then was sort of back and forth for the next four or five years. So I spent about six years in the Gulf state of Oman and mm. I have amazing friendships there. And what struck me when I went to Oman was the very first question people ask you is what faith are you? And they want to have a conversation about it. It's mm. not because they want to um, judge you for it. It's mainly mm. because it's such an important part. Daily practice, daily yeah. practice in faith is faith practice is, is, you know, it's structured, it's sort of structured within the, um, the state's um, systems as well as the organisational system. But it's also, Oman is very open to other faiths as well. And they were very keen to know what my faith was. And I'd never been asked that question. Wow. It was amazing. And so for the year That's that I cool. spent there, I kind of could lean into my faith as well. So mm. that was really mm. in some ways freeing. So I'm really yeah. glad you mentioned that. That's cool. Yeah. Thanks for sharing yeah. that. I've never been to Oman, but I'd love to go. So Beautiful. if anybody's listening from Oman, I'm, I'm, I'm willing to uh, entertain opportunities to visit. Let oh, me know. Maybe we have to make some connections. We'll talk about it. Okay, cool. Right on. <laughs> Thank you, Jeremy. It was a wonderful conversation. I really appreciate your time. Thank you so, so much. My pleasure. My pleasure. Thanks for having me.